Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show, where we interview fighters and firebrands on the political and cultural battlefields. No Republican politician had a more passionate following in the 2008 and 2012 presidential campaign seasons than Dr. Ron Paul, a principled libertarian, a member of Congress for 24 years, and father of Senator Rand Paul. Dr. Ron Paul ran on essentially three major planks. Number one, get the government out of ordinary people's business. Number two, end our policy of policing the world, which means, among other things, no longer sending $50 billion in aid to foreign countries and closing the 750 military bases that the U.S. currently has in 80 different countries around the world. And number three, eliminate the Federal Reserve. I'd like to touch on all three topics today. Before I begin, though, I should note that I built a website in 2012 called JewsForRonPaul.com, which argued that Dr. Paul was not anti-Israel despite what his critics said. All right, Dr. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you. It's an honor and pleasure. I'm going to get to your position on Israel soon, but let me begin with libertarianism, which is your political philosophy. Many Orthodox Jews who comprise a large percentage of my audience find libertarianism attractive, but they're unsure if it is fully compatible with the biblical vision, which of course demands that we give charity, look after the poor, etc. What would you say to them? Well, I would say that it's a wonderful philosophy because it's based on non-intervention, non-violence. So you can't hurt, kill, or lie to people. And so you recognize them as individuals and you recognize them with their property and you're obligated to fulfill your promises. So that I think is wonderful. But a lot of people say, yeah, but everybody would be free. Wouldn't there be more poverty? Well, take a look around the world now. The freer the country, the more prosperous it is. It's been that way forever. And now our country is getting less free and we're less prosperous. Matter of fact, we're poorer than we believe because most of what we have left is all based on debt. Now, I think that when you look at a society, it's a very, very moral to have a libertarian society because it's humanitarian. You know, that word is used carelessly. But if you care about humanity and how people get along, people live much better if they're allowed to assume the responsibility or something. They said, yeah, but there'd be no government, no government to, to make sure things work out. But you know what? The government becomes self-government. It's not, and sometimes self-government and libertarian government is much stricter than uh, the ordinary government where you buy favors and uh, the special interests, the war interests or the pharmaceuticals come in and they control the government. So no, it, it happens when a person looks into the libertarian message of nonviolence, no aggression. I come across with it, it's a pretty beautiful message, especially when it's humanitarian and especially when the record is so well documented that if you care about people and how they live is far from perfect because you can't make people perfect. And if you allow them to make a lot of decisions, they will. But the big difference is, is when an individual makes a decision and has that responsibility, it might hurt themselves. But if you're in government and you're running government and you have a lot of power and clout, when you make a mistake, 
like going to war when you shouldn't go to war, a lot of people suffer. So, no, it is not designed to think that uh, it's paradise, it'll be perfect and all that. But it's a lot different than obey, 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 and look at the nonsense that went on with COVID. That's the ultimate result of what an authoritarian government wants to do. I actually sometimes use the Orthodox Jewish community as an example of what a society would look like without all these mandates from the government. In Orthodox Jewish communities, people pay for their schools, not the government because they're private religious schools. They pay for their synagogue. In New York, you even pay for a private ambulance service. People pay for scholarships for kids to go to religious camps. All this is done on a voluntary basis. So I think from the Orthodox Jewish community, you could see how a functioning society could work even without any force. And then the people who actually give money for all these programs are honored rather than vilified. But nonetheless, I want to play devil's advocate. People say, but what's wrong with having some minimal welfare state where the state takes care of the poor? What's wrong with that? Well, it's usually less efficient. It becomes politicized. But our Constitution is not overly rigid. It doesn't say that you can't have a government organization maybe participating but it can't be done at the federal government. They feared centralized power. But, you know, with all this lockdown stuff, what has happened, the freer the state is and the less rules and regulations, the more prosperous they have been. And guess what? The failure of the authoritarian state, you know, the New Yorks and the Chicago's and the Californias, this is where people are leaving. They're coming to Texas and Florida uh, because, yes, it's better. Not perfect, but it's better But there could not be, under a strict interpretation of the Constitution, a federal government prohibition against having, you know, in the states. I would uh, personally argue that the churches and the synagogues and the various charitable organizations are much more inclined to uh, do a better job. I once heard Milton Friedman say, he said when he was growing up, it was the middle class that got the worst medical care. He said because the rich could afford medical care and the poor were often given free medical care by, I think, Christian hospitals. It was a middle class that maybe weren't, didn't get the best care. But you also, Dr. Paul, thank God, are a l- little bit elderly. Some people say, well, if we didn't have government involvement, people would die on the streets. Well, you remember very well, you grew up in the era before the government grew massively in the 60s. How did, let's say, the medical care system work before Medicare, Medicaid? Did people get care? How did it work? Well, I, I got into officially practicing medicine right at the change from total free markets, which were never really free because there were inflation and different problems like that. But I graduated in 1960, and I was in the military, and I was in San Antonio, and I did some moonlighting at the Santa Rosa Hospital, a charity hospital. And nobody was ever turned away. It wasn't even an issue. Anybody got sick, hurt, they had medical care. So uh, it wasn't like they wouldn't be taken care of, but they would be taken care of in other means. And it certainly would be a lot cheaper. I've claimed that back then when I started medicine in the 60s, that when I worked with other private physicians, usually what happened was you were charging the minimum amount. You know, you knew your patients and you'd help the patient. And there was a change when there became third-party payments and the corporations got involved, the insurance companies got involved. And the doctors then would say, oh, I don't have to look my patient in the eye and say, you know, it's going to cost you umpteen dollars 
there was a different attitude because, oh, you're going to send a bill to Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Even though that was not government, it was uh, facilitated by government. But then it got much worse when you had all the other government. Most people use government, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid or veteran medicine. So there is no regard that doctors learn how to have multiple diagnoses and get their charges up. So one system is a collective system causes the most expense and I think uh, the, the worst quality, uh, at least not as good as private. So uh, I think a good example of what I'm saying is what happened under COVID. If you wanted to have a good doctor-patient relationship, you would say, hey, look, we know something about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, and we have a different attitude, and this is what it is, and explain it to the patients. And the countries that were using this technique, they did much better. And there was doctors who even talked about it, let alone do it, could be put in jail. They could have their license removed. It was totally authoritarian. So they were getting far removed from the private practice of medicine. And all along with COVID, I said, what they're doing is they're destroying the doctor-patient relationship. And that's where the action should be for psychological reasons, medical reasons, the whole works. But now it's very impersonal. Even though there's some still, we have enough freedom left that there are private organizations and private religious organizations that will have certain programs where they try to avoid all this regulation. Because once the doctors then realize that they can uh, pad their bills, then they say, uh, well, well, we have to regulate that. So once the government messes up, they have to have regulations to correct what they did, then they will have wage and price controls. And then you have shortages. And what did we have? I mean, in recent years, these past years with all the mischief and COVID and everything else, there was shortage of medical personnel. And it's still shortage. There's still, I, I read stories about hospitals being closed because of the interference of government with regulations that there should be none. And this idea that there would be no regulations is totally foolish. The government regulates now and exempts the pharmaceutical companies from liability. In a free market, that would be part of my opening statement, that you're responsible for what you do and what you promise, and you would be liable. So it would be more orderly and more fair as far as I'm concerned. Right. And then in terms of the costs, I'll just give a quick personal example. I needed to have a hernia surgery around five years ago. I called several hospitals in New York, and I couldn't even really get a price, but I did some Googling. I think it's easily north of $10,000 if you go to a regular hospital. I went to some private clinic in Maryland. They charged me $1,000. <laughs> so it's just, you know, the cost when you get the government involved and the insurance involved, everything goes astronomical versus if you're just dealing with the doctor directly. All right. You have called for the United States to cut off all aid to Israel. And as a result, you've been called an anti-Semite by people who think nothing of maligning a person's character on the drop of a hat. You, of course, though, call on the U.S. to cut off aid to all foreign countries. In a 2011 primary debate, you explained that you think U.S. aid to Israel is actually bad for the Jewish state since it makes her beholden to the U.S. and unable to think or act independently. The late Rabbi Meir Kahana, an extreme nationalist and leader of Israel's Kach party, actually made the very same point many times and called on Israel to stop taking money from the United States. But I'm sure you have more to say on this topic. So let me ask you, in addition to the argument you offered at that 2011 debate I just referenced, what would you say to Jews who think the U.S. ought to send aid to Israel? Jewish citizen? Yes. 
like Golda Meir, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I believe when she came here many, many years ago, she didn't really come to get a bailout from the government. I mean, it led to that. But uh, she came to talk to successful Jews in this country to help out. And that's perfectly all right. There should not be any prohibitions uh, for that. And it's a voluntary system. In a libertarian society, anything that's voluntary, both sides have to agree, is permissible. And that solves so many problems because you don't have this third party called the government uh, that's going to regulate this because something is, uh, we have to have perfect equity and we have to have a government monitoring this and, and the whole works. But the aid, I would never have a bill that would say, okay, no aid to Israel, no aid to so-and-so. What I would say is don't steal from the American people to pass it out around to any other country when I was, I guess, first in the Congress, it was many years ago, uh, the Israel, their neighbor, Iraq, had a nuclear reactor, and they bombed it. And the uh, congressmen that were pro-Israel turned against it, and I think I was a lone vote. My position was, well, that's not my business. I might not have done it if it was my responsibility, but if it's Israel and they have a neighbor and, and they fear it, that's their business. I wouldn't tell them to do it. I wouldn't encourage it. I wouldn't finance it, but I wouldn't interfere. And that's been my argument that Israel ultimately, you know, does have to kowtow to our foreign policy. Most of the time they work it out and uh, both sides are happy with it. But there are times, even now, there'll be a discussion that are the Americans and the Israelis going to agree exactly on policy in Syria? Well, I would take care of that by not sending any of the troops to Syria and that Israel can do what they want. But it's all going to be taken care of because we as a country and many others, the world is certainly in a bankruptcy and it will eventually end because the bankruptcy and the default is occurring with the devaluation of the currency. Oh, you need money? Yeah, we'll print it for you. We're consuming our wealth and uh, we're getting by. But it's some of this nonsense that we get involved with, this empire we're operating, it ends because eventually we can't afford it. And you mentioned also, and this is also mentioned by a, an Israeli politician named Moshe Feiglin, he points out that because of the whole Camp David Accords that was orchestrated by America, Egypt gets, I think, either 2 or $3 billion from America every single year. <laughs> now, the only powerful enemy Israel has, potentially, is Egypt. There was never a peace deal with Syria. Syria never got any money from the United States, and Syria remains a backward country. So it's like a, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, Israel gets money, but so does Egypt, and so do many other countries. So it's not clear that Israel actually gets on top at the end anyways. See, but that's what I like about following through on, on libertarianism is non-intervention. And most people can understand it, even Republicans and Democrats and independents, that non-intervention means that if you live in a community, you don't have a right to go into their house and take some furniture you like. People say, no, that'd be stealing. Oh, I'll send my congressman. <laughs> He'll go in there and get it for me. Hey, they have three cars and we want one. So it, really, that's what we do. We send our congressmen to do the robbery. But non-intervention goes all the way through, whether it's your next door neighbor or whether it's uh, any other individual, certainly another country. That means that you uh, just mind our own business. If you want to change things, if I am, have a strong desire to, to participate in what's going on in Israel, 
I can go there, I can help if I have somebody, I can contribute. But interventionism, it becomes political all the time and it usually doesn't work, even if it's based on generosity. I argue the case that the whole foreign policy issue is taking money from poor people in this country and giving it to rich people in other countries because it never helps the poor people. It goes to other countries. Oh, they're starving. They're starving. But they're also having a war. Oh, well, we'll send some money to the people who are not winning the war. We want them to win. But all of a sudden, the powerful group takes the money and the food. So it's impractical. It's immoral because you've stolen the money from some poor person in this country because you ran up the debt, you borrowed the money, and you give them the inflation. There's nothing moral about a position like that. As far as I'm concerned, that's stealing. Uh, you wrote a book called End the Fed. In it, you note, if I recall correctly, that there was zero inflation in this country, essentially, before the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. In other words, $100 in 1790 was still worth $100 in 1913. Since the creation of the Federal Reserve, though, we have had inflation of about 3,000%. In other words, $100 in 1913 is worth $3,000 today. And you blame the Federal Reserve for this massive hike. I know this is a big topic, but briefly and using layman's terms, do you only oppose the Federal Reserve because of inflation or are there other reasons it's bad as well? Well, uh, the number one reason would be they have no authority. You can only do what the founders decided that you have the authority to do it. So there's no authority for a central bank and uh, because they always lead to trouble. Uh, the other thing is the moral issue is that central banks are always manipulated for the benefit of bankers and the rich, and they put the penalty on the middle class and the poor because the taxes are passed on to them with higher prices. If you're a billionaire and bread prices go up, do you think they care? But what about right now? We have inflation that came out of the woodworks here in these last couple of years, and I think it's going to get a lot worse. But the person living on the margin, and there's more and more living on the margin now, when food prices go up 8 and 10%, they're usually going up 20% for some people. And the cost of living doesn't go up the same for everybody else. So I think it's a moral issue on the honesty of money. The Bible is very clear on honesty of weights and measures. And uh, it's been known biblically, Old and New Testament, that you're not supposed to steal. It's a method of they're, uh, they're counterfeiters. And that should be, you know, not permissible. But they've been around for a long time. And I've, I never had a lot of conversation with Ronald Reagan, but he was sort of very sympathetic to gold. And I remember one private conversation I had with him. And he knew where my position was. He says, you know, every great country that has gone off the gold standard never remained great. And I keep thinking, you know, our country is less great now than it was back when Reagan was president. And we're facing some disaster because, you know, uh, the, the, all the empires, even the Roman Empire, which was around for a long time, it was the debasement of currency, the default. You know, they're arguing in Washington right now about a default on the budget. Oh, they won't send out the bills and they won't pay the bills. No, the government's always going to do it. And they always default. They always default by giving you money. They give you monopoly money. And all of a sudden, oh, they, that, that doesn't work too well. So, uh, no, I do it because it's constitutional and it's a moral issue. And economically, it's foolhardy to have a central bank 
that is run secretly by the military industrial complex and like the pharmaceutical industry. I think it creates more wars and more welfareism and has no benefit uh, to the poor people in a country. Okay, last question. I know this is a ridiculous question to ask a father, but are you proud of your son, Rand Paul? And is there anything you would do different if you were magically transported into his Senate seat tomorrow? <laughs> no, no, I, I think he's doing fine. People said, do you guys get together, father and son, and talk things over? I said, no, we, we really don't. I said, I think he learned well many years ago. And uh, I, will, I might want to get some uh, information from him about what, what's going on behind the scenes, you know, in the committee and, and who's this guy here, that sort of thing. But uh, I think he's doing a great job. He understood the, you know, the fundamentals. He was an avid reader. A lot of people aren't, you know, interested in Austrian economics and the Federal Reserve. One thing that I feel good about is that somebody like Rand followed through and he did what he thought he could do. I, he never asked me, he says, Dad, do you think I ought to run for Senate? I probably was like, what? You're going to start off by just running for the Senate? <laughs> uh, and look, he did it and he did well. And so I would say that he, he had learned well and he still is. And he's uh, quite frankly up against some odds right now because uh, being the only person taking some of those positions, even this position about being anti-war is something that uh, just think of uh, the assassinations in the 1960s. That's people who stood up against war in Vietnam, JFK and RFK, Martin Luther King, and these individuals, you know, were assassinated by our government. That's what I believe, because they took a position of pro-peace. And that's why we have to, we're having a rally here next week in Washington, uh, and it's a coalition coming together of progressives and libertarian conservatives to get to talk about it. And right now, some of the statistics are moving, especially in the Republican Party, where there's more and more Republicans thinking, why are we in Ukraine? What are we doing? So more than like 60-some percent of the Republicans who are usually the, the hawks and the Democrats used to be the pro-peace people, you know, in the 60s. So, but I think there is a shift. There's an attitude because it's the people that decide what the kind of government we have. It was the people who woke up that finally, you know, stopped some of this nonsense with COVID. It was the people that woke up in the 60s and demonstrated against the Vietnam War and it finally ended. All I keep trying to do is wake people up and try to explain to them that an attitude of being pro-peace is pro-American, it's pro-moral, it's practical, it makes a lot of sense. So that is why I feel so strongly about following through on a pro-peace philosophy. All right, thank you. And of course, we're also very grateful to your son for his opposition to Tony Fauci. That's also a huge you know, feather in his hat. You know, oh boy, that's for sure. For <laughs> All right, that does it for us. If you'd like to read some of Dr. Ron Paul's books, I'm going to have some links in the episode description. I'll have the book, The Revolution, a manifesto up there, as well as End the Fed. I know that Dr. Paul is not everyone's cup of tea. He doesn't necessarily have Winston Churchill's oratorical skills. Neither does Donald Trump. And some people hate Donald Trump for that reason. And some people might not like Dr. Paul for that reason. But Dr. Paul, I believe, is someone really to admire. He was really the first Republican in the 9-11 era to be anti-war. 
So after spending many years in Afghanistan and Iraq, Ron Paul kept on saying, why are we there? What's the purpose? It's none of our business. We should get out. And he was vilified for it, and he said it anyways. Donald Trump actually picked up that mantle four years later, and now actually anti-war is very popular in the Republican Party. But Dr. Paul stood basically alone discussing that in 2008 and 2012. He also was the only one really in both parties to draw attention to the downside of the Federal Reserve. They have a complete control over our economy. They decide when the interest rates go up, they decide when they go down, and they single-handedly could cause a depression or cause a flourishing of the economy. It's ridiculous that so much power should be concentrated in the hands of so few people who are not even elected by the people. Anyways, whether you agree with Dr. Paul about ending the Fed or not, it's definitely an important topic that almost no one thinks about or discusses, and people ought to, because it does have a tremendous amount of power. Dr. Paul is also a principled libertarian, and in general, I respect anybody who is principled, and also a principled constitutionalist. I think sometimes he was called Dr. No, because you could have like 434 members of Congress and the House of Representatives voting for something, and he would vote the opposite. Why? Because he thought the Constitution didn't give the Congress authority to opine on a particular issue. So let's say it was a foreign resolution, either in support of a foreign country or condemning a foreign country. And sometimes that foreign country was Israel. Often it was a different country. He just would never go along with that resolution, no matter what it said, because he thought that Congress has no authority under the Constitution to give its opinion on foreign affairs. And so he voted no on principle. Who cares that much about the Constitution in Congress? Dr. Paul did. He cared about the Constitution. He took his oath seriously. Again, you could agree with him, disagree with him, but I respect people who take their oath seriously, respect people who care about the Constitution. And I hope perhaps you've learned a thing or two from this interview today and perhaps a thing or two from his books if you want to look him up. He actually ran on the libertarian ticket for president, I think, in the late 1980s. He's really a principled libertarian. Many people sometimes voice libertarian principles. Very few people follow through no matter where it leads. And Dr. Paul did. So again, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Please give it a good rating on Apple if you're so inclined. Please also sign up for our newsletter if you're so inclined. You can just visit 1vs450.com to do that. 1vs450.com. That's El Yohanavi, Elijah the Prophet, against the 450 false prophets of Baal. He was right. They were wrong. Do not be intimidated. Take care. Have a great night, great day, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. <laughs>